Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers, the show where I spotlight producers from all corners of our industry to understand who they are, what they do, and why they do what they do. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. Anyone else tripping over the fact that this is episode 67? Y'all, it's kind of crazy. You know, when I set out to do this, I wanted to create the show that I wish existed when I was coming up in my own producing journey and navigating this business, which is so great, great sometimes. And so I would like to take this opportunity to invite you and, and everyone listening to slide in my DMs. You know, if you don't follow me on social media, I'm pretty active on Instagram. It's at Carolina Gropa and the show is at Angle on Producers. And I'd love to hear from you what you're taking away from the show, what you love, what you want more of, what nuggets you feel like I haven't yet given you. I want to make sure I'm still bringing you guys the value that I set out to bring when I started this two years ago. So hit me up, DM me. This week on the show, we hear from Dan Coogan, who is one of the most prominent nonfiction producers working today. Both an Academy Award and Emmy Award winner, Dan founded Story Syndicate with Liz Garbus in 2019. Liz also happens to be his wife, and we actually get into what it's like to start a company with your significant other. Previously, Dan was the founding executive director of Impact Partners. They have a unique model of equity investing into the documentary film community. They pioneered a system where filmmakers and investors work together to achieve mutually beneficial goals of telling powerful stories, raising awareness about critical issues facing our world today, reaching mass audiences on a global scale, and creating revenue for their films. He has produced more than 100 films and series, including Alan vs. Pharaoh, Icarus, which won the 2018 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which won the 2019 Independent Spirit Award for Best Documentary, and The Cove, which won the 2010 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Dan has been highly regarded by many of my colleagues, and while we've never worked together, I am a fan and advocate of how he amplifies filmmakers from all walks of life. So this week, we dive deep into the documentary scene, discuss best practices for finding and maintaining investor relationships, and he reveals his Venn diagram for choosing projects. So without further ado, let's hear from Dan. And let me say that I think what you're doing is really important. And when I was running Impact Partners, I started a program of producer fellowship. It's very important to mentor younger producers because that's so much of the future of the industry. It's not just about directors and writers. They're, they really need great producers. And the more mentoring you can do, the better. Yeah. And I'd venture to say that because of the gift of streamers and how the industry has shifted and how many more producers there seem to be, it almost feels like there's more of us, but it feels like there's less of us that have come up in the more traditional ways of the trenches and kind of understand yep. it. And so I think it's important to create that and pass that baton forward as much as we can, but also to to, I believe, show people that there is a path forward from a place of integrity and compassion, and you can work really hard and achieve your wildest dreams while still being supportive of others, because it is such a solo journey for most producers. You know, um, as someone who people hear me talk about this on the show all the time, because I'm very transparent, and as someone who's suffered a lot in my own journey, I've been at this for 15 years with the ups and downs and the undulations of the business. And not letting it impact me too much on my personal life. Um, it's been an instrumental tool for me to navigate sort of selfishly. It's like free therapy. My own um, frustrations with it, because it is so hard and it's not to dissuade anyone. It's just to give them 
the full breadth of understanding of what they're stepping into, because oftentimes, you know, there just isn't these kind of conversations out there. So um, it's, I can only do it because of people like yourself who say yes to being here and being engaged and sharing. So thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Sure. It's my pleasure. So I'd love to just start at the beginning. Um, how you found this business, how you found that producing was a thing one could do. I came into producing mostly through failure. I was in film school. I thought I wanted to be a writer and a director. And I was writing a historical feature script. And I did an enormous amount of research, which I loved. I was very good on structure. And I outlined the thing. And I started writing and found out my characters weren't talking. <laughs> and I just was not good at dialogue. And I began to, to focus at that time really on like, what am I good at? Where do I add value? And I always was really good at producing, in other words, at helping creative people make their work as strong as it could be and get it done. And so it was through that process of really focusing on where my own skills were and where they weren't that I started to move into producing and I've been doing it ever since. And I, and I, I take a great deal of personal satisfaction out of being able to recognize great storytellers and great material, and then helping those storytellers achieve the most they can with the material that they have. Yeah. And you went to film school, right? I went to film school, although I dropped out after two years. Mm. I was in film school in the mid-90s, and it was a funny time. It was a funny time back then, and there were a lot of people who went to film school back then. Somehow, like people often go to law school, which is like, you're not sure what you're, you're going to do. Maybe if you, you'll go do this. And I thought it was a terrible way to go to film school. I, I treated it as art school, mm. uh, which is to say, like, it's a place to be around other people doing what you do and to learn how to do it well yourself and to just use all the resources that were there to make things. And um, two years in, I just felt like I had learned everything I could. I had some great professors. I had some great people uh, around me, but I had all these other people who were like, yeah, I'm who are very focused on their grades and their MFA degrees. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of thinking, I want to be a producer. I don't really give a shit about what my grades are or, or a degree. It doesn't really matter to me. I just want to be making things. And so I dropped out after two years and started making films and just never looked back. And so from when you started making things, what were those early days like? H how did you identify a path forward so that you didn't potentially get stuck doing, you know, the smaller version of it so that you could continuously grow and finesse the skills. I met a terrific storyteller named David Shiskal, who had worked for Errol Morris mm -hmm. for a while and was had an idea for his first documentary feature, which is a film about swingers, married <laughs> couples who are into group sex. And to me, what was interesting about it was that they were all Republicans from Orange County, California. <laughs> they were the most normal, average, everyday people in every way imaginable, except on Saturday nights, instead of playing bridge or going bowling, <laughs> they're having group sex. And that tension between those two things, I just found riotously funny and in a deeper way, sort of very interesting about what America had become, who Americans were, and our attitudes towards all kinds of things. And at that point, I had been in film school for a number of years. I had been on lots of sets, you know, professional sets, as well as film school sets. And I felt like I was ready to make a movie. And so I just dropped out and went and made that movie. Now that took me five years. And so I had to do a lot of other things while I was doing that. But in some ways, that was my second film school. Mm -hmm. And I did literally every job on that set. It was made for very little money. 
And I taught myself every single job in a set, and it was the best education I could have ever had. So in those five years, how did you sustain that? You obviously were working different jobs to offset. Like, it must have been a crazy period. What was it like? I worked for other filmmakers. I lived very inexpensively. I had some support from my family. So I was very lucky in that regard to be able to do that, to sustain me. But I got to the end of that process and sold that movie and felt like, okay, now I really know how to be a filmmaker. And I moved from that into um, scripted. I I sold a bunch of projects to studios, some at New Line, some at Universal, and very quickly learned how brutal the Hollywood development process was. Mm. And it was a really interesting learning period where I discovered what I really wanted, which was to make things and not to be in the process of development all the time. And one of the reasons I chose to focus on documentary earlier in my career as opposed to scripted, and I was always interested in both, was it was much easier to just make a documentary film. You know, I now, at this point, I'm 52, I've, you know, produced or executive produced, I don't know, 125 films (laughs) and series. And that to me has been really fulfilling. You know, a prolific career in scripted would be a, a fraction of that. And I really like just being able to make things. I'm now uh, in our in the company I started a few years ago, which is a new production company. We're starting to do more scripted, and I think I'm at a point where I can get those things done more than I could have when I was younger. Yeah. But I just really like actually making things as opposed to talking about making. Talking about making things. Yeah, it's interesting. I would would you say that when Jira Dreams of Sushi came on the scene, which was like what 2012? Like I feel like that era of documentary filmmaking was the era that shifted us into where we are now, catapulted us in this momentum where people started to realize, audiences started to realize, oh my gosh, like documentaries can be theatrical. It feels like it began this shift that we're in now where it's almost become like a hybrid, right? And and I ask this because my very first thing that I ever produced was a, a feature documentary. And similarly, it wasn't something that I sought out to do. It just fell on my lap and it was very much, I want to make things, here's an opportunity to go do it and learn it and figure it out. And I'm going to lean in. And that's kind of my whole MO in my life and my career. I'm curious if, since you've been through so much of this journey of the doc space, that filmmaking space, Would you say that that was when things shifted? Perhaps I'm showing my age, but I would put it much earlier. Mm. I mean, for me, the film that made me think that documentary could be commercial and therefore that you could build a career doing it was Paris is Burning, Jenny Livingston's film, which played at the film forum for months and months and months and months, I believe was distributed by Miramax. Mm did, you know, seven figures at the box office, which at that time was totally like unheard, unheard of, of yeah. for documentary. For me, it was that film. It was uh, Brothers Keeper, Michael Moore's film. Those were the <laughs> films that for me made me feel like you could make a documentary film and have it be in theaters and have it be seen at least within the independent film community. So those are the films that inspired me. And that's a, that's a much earlier period. I I do think that something changed around the time of an inconvenient truth in the sense that that was a movie that made people feel that documentaries could create change or at least could inspire people to create change. And it also ushered in a whole new group of funders who wanted to support documentary films because of the social issues that they created awareness around. You know, there had always been 
some degree of foundation support and public television support for documentary. And there was always Sheila Nevins at HBO, but there wasn't a huge group of funders. And I, and, you know, I build impact partners out of that era, I think, and, and income and truth was central. I think it ushered a whole group of funders in that then created opportunities for producers and directors to get films funded. But do you feel like that is still very much the case post the political situations we've we've endured in this country? It, it now makes me wonder, you know, there is always a lens, there is always a point of view. And there is this conversation about Hollywood and politics and, and our ability to use stories to impact change, to inform ideas. Do you feel like that is still stronger than ever, given how... Things have evolved, you know, and and the distrust of media. Anything we see now can be fake news. I kind of feel like we were for a very long time from, you know, the early 2000s, perhaps uh, mid 2000s up to about 26, 2017. So maybe a 10, 15 year period, something like that in what I would call the golden age of documentary. Many people have referred to that as the, the golden age of documentary. I don't think we're in that period anymore. Yeah. I think we're in the corporate age of documentary, which is both a good and a bad thing. I think what was so exciting about that period up until the mid to late uh, 20-teens was that people were doing it really independently. The, the quality of the storytelling was exploding. People were taking nonfiction much more seriously as... Um, a form of storytelling and not simply a form of imparting information. Mm -hmm. I think we had extraordinary filmmaking, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of extraordinary films made in that period. And it coincided with more and more people um, wanting to watch the films, the films growing, becoming more, the, the budget's getting bigger, like all boats were getting lifted. Streamers started to get involved first Netflix, then others. I think to some extent it changed. And now you, you no longer have streamers going to festivals in order to acquire films for their platforms. I mean, they'll do that, but it's a very small number compared to the number of films and series, by the way, limited uh, series that they're financing themselves. And so the nature of the marketplace has changed from one in which people make independent documentaries and take them to festivals and sell them, and that's most of what's out there in the world, to now being most of what people tend to see are documentary films and series that are financed and distributed by the streaming platforms. And so there's a different lens that they have on what it is they want to make than maybe an independent director has on, on what he or she wants to make. And that is driving what's out there to some extent. There will always be great independent documentaries, but I think that that's not where the money is coming from in terms of funding these. It's really more coming from the streamers. And I think that's changed the business in, in, in ways that are both positive and negative. I think that as a producer, my job is to continue to find ways to make the kinds of films that I believe in, that I think are important, that I think are resonant, and I think are, that are great storytelling, and, and simply try to use the opportunities that those platforms offer to get that done. Beautiful response. I mean, it seems like, you know, impact, the word impact has been at the forefront of your career, even before and during and post your impact partner days, you know, when you look at the companies you've co founded, the work that seems to inspire you and move you, that seems to be a through line. Have you always had that vision for what you wanted to do? You know, what was always interesting to me about producing was finding a way 
to tell a story that really mattered to me with a high level of craft and artistry in a way that it could reach a large audience. In other words, be commercial. Yeah. Always what interested me was the tension between those two things. How do you do something that's commercial that's also worth doing? Mm. And that tension, that was like the place in the Venn diagram that I like. There's what's commercial and financeable. There's what's worth doing. And there's what's artistically compelling. And those circles overlap. And the place in the center that all three of those circles interlap in, that's the place that I always wanted to be. To me, what was interesting was the challenge of doing all three. Because it's, it's not easy. That was what was interesting. That's what compelled me. So that's why those things have always been, I've tried to get them all together in the films that I do, because that challenge is interesting. But it's like the Ira Glass quote, right, about taste. You, you sought out maybe with the taste to do this. And there must have been a turning point when you actually were able to live within the Venn diagram <laughs> overlap where you were like, yes, this is it for me. So did you have to do a little bit too much of either extreme before you found that center point for you. And then once you found it, how has it been to sustain it? Because from the outside, right, reading the kinds of work you've created and the accolades that so much of what you've worked on has received, one could say that you found that pretty early on and somehow you've, you've, you've been able to keep striking lightning. Would you agree? For anyone who has seen The Lifestyle, which is the first feature documentary I produced, which is about swingers. I don't think that it was that commercial. Right. It was an unrated film about not very attractive looking couples in their 60s, 70s and 80s having group sex. <laughs> and it's incredibly explicit. Yeah. You see everything. everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, if it had been rated, it would have been rated X. Um, and to me, that was a really incredibly fun strange challenges. How do you how do you tell a story that's really, to me, powerful and metaphorically interesting about America and also have it be explicitly sexual in a way, by the way, that is totally untitillating? Right. There is no <laughs> less appealing film to me than that movie. They say, right, everything is about sex except sex itself. Totally. So I, I would say that that was not a particularly commercial film. Um, nor was it a widely seen film, but it's a film that I thought was important and fascinating and worth making. And I think my career, um, I mean, I don't really look at it as a career. I just look at wanting to make things that are, that I think are good, but like over time, I found a way to try and do interesting things that approach larger and larger audiences. You know, sometimes you have better shot at that than others. I've made films that I adore and deeply believe in that I thought were really wildly underseen like everyone else. That can be disappointing. We did a film early on at Impact Partners called Helen Back Again mm -hmm. with a first-time filmmaker. It was the first film made on a digital SLR camera. And in fact, the director, Dan Fung Dennis, was a, a war photographer who created a rig to be able to shoot video on his Canon DSLR. And he was the first yeah. person to do it. And I think it's one of the most extraordinary films I've ever been lucky enough to be part of. It was nominated for Academy Award, but I have to say, I don't think anybody much saw it. Right. And, and by the way, the Academy were structured the way it is today. It definitely would not have been nominated. It was, it was a product of a certain moment in the way that the Academy did things. But to me, that film is incredibly important and seminal. And um, I feel lucky to have been a part of it. So they're not all successful commercially. I think yeah. like, 
ideally you want to make something that's successful somehow. Either a lot of people yeah. see it or you sell it for a lot of money or it's really artistically important. Like it's fulfilling to do something really well. Yeah. But it's not easy to get all three things, like lots of people commercially successful and artistically successful all at once. But that that goal, the goal to do that is what drives my choices. And I keep trying to do it. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like Beckett quote, fail, fail again, fail better. You know, you just keep trying and um, every once in a while you're lucky enough to get it right. Right. And then you blink and you formed a career, right, for f- years and decades. But, you know, with so many of the, the projects you've been a part of, the films you've been a part of, being Academy Award nominated or winning these prestigious awards, do you feel a sense of pressure that the industry now looks to you? How do you sustain that? Do you feel that pressure at all? Or if not, how do you reconcile that to take to take chances creatively? I don't feel a lot of pressure. I just feel the desire to stay inspired and love doing what I do. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a helpful answer. But like I made a decision a long time ago that if I, for example, if I wanted, um, uh, if I wanted to live a certain way and, you know, make money that I would, I would, I would have to go do one kind of work. And that what I really wanted to do was get up every day and like what I did and feel good about what I was putting into the world. And for me, that was making documentary films. It just happens to be that this industry grew up. I, I'm lucky enough to have wanted to do that at a time when nonfiction filmmaking has been embraced by the mainstream. And so it's possible to have what you would call a career, you know, and build companies and, you know, make lots of things and have them be profitable. It's been possible to do that in documentary. And so I've just been really lucky. But the only pressure I feel is the same pressure I felt in my 20s, which was like, I want to make things that are that I believe are worth making and exciting. And I want to fill my days with stuff that I want to do and that I want people to see and that I hope touches and moves them the way it touches and moves me. And so the pressure I feel is like, how do I keep finding those things? How do you keep finding it? Um, well, luckily, the world keeps spinning <laughs> and um, shit keeps happening and weird contradictions and horrible tragedies and inspiring moments of beauty, like all of these things keep occurring. So you just have to keep your eyes open and keep reading and keep talking to people who you think are really interesting people and keep seeking out storytellers who you feel have something to say to me like those are the most rewarding experiences yeah the filmmakers i adore working with most are well first of all my wife you know i've gotten to watch her from her first film when we weren't even together but i was in the audience at sundance when liz garbus's the farm angola usa um premiered i adore watching what it is that she wants to make and how she thinks about it and helping her through that process I also love working with other filmmakers who are just discovering what they do. So another one of my favorite filmmakers uh, is Penny Lane. Mm. And I was with Penny when she made Nixon and I worked with her on um, Nuts. Filmmakers who are really have something interesting and unusual to say can say it really well. Like those are the people that I want to work with. The search for and discovery of those people. Yeah. To me, that's like the most interesting and most satisfying part of this 
industry. Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of people, filmmakers, right, regardless of if you're in a narrative or doc space, oftentimes you go to any Q&A when that was still a thing we did. And, and there's always that question of like, how do I find a producer? How do I find what is it that the industry wants? What is the story I should be writing? What like all of these questions that I feel like are external questions about what they should be doing. And oftentimes the answer seems to be if you're just doing you, which who, who knows? Some, some people takes a lifetime to figure out what it is that they, who they are and what they have to say and what they're interested in. If you're doing that and you're, you're curious enough about it, you can and will find the right people to help you on that path. But I get this question all the time. You know, how do you define taste? Like, how do you choose material in a sea of so much nowadays? Anybody can write, anybody can go pick up an iPhone and shoot something. How do you identify right? That talent, that person who, who, is a, who has a vision for something that they have to, they feel like they must say. Most people don't really understand the work that is required, right? So for those who are thinking that and wondering, well, gee, it's easy for Dan to say, but what is that thing? I could tell you, but I don't think it would make any sense. And it probably wouldn't really be the answer. Like it would be something that's beautiful and something that touches me and something that I find intensely weird and fascinating or something that has contains a fascinating contradiction or something that makes me think or, you know, feel, I, I mean, it all sounds very uh, banal. No, but I think the answer is, is correct and appropriate because I want people listening to hear that no matter who you're asking this question to, it's usually the same answer that it is, I don't know, <laughs> you know? And I think that's important. I think a lot of people keep banging their head against the wall thinking that there's some secret and something that we're all keeping from, from them or, or whatever. But I think it's important to drill in exactly what you said that you don't know. I don't know. Nobody really knows. There's an intuition about it and it's hard to quantify what that is. And so the most important thing is to just be doing the thing that it is you want to be doing because then someone will take notice. And that's usually how it begins. And I think for anyone who's looking for a producer, it's not just finding a person who calls themselves that. It is a marriage, a creative marriage. And so finding a person who who gets your brand of weird, who gets the thing that you're trying to do and is inspired by that and can amplify that, I think that's so important. And oftentimes when people have bad experiences with producers, I wonder if that's where the disconnect was, is that it was never really meant to be a fit and they forced it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting point. I, I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you you, know, you co-founded Story Syndicate with, with your wife, Liz Garbus, and that's been like two years now. And so if there's anyone who can speak on, you know, working and developing a creative and professional and personal marriage of sorts, it would be you because you've obviously now been working with her for a while. And then you just guys decided to form a company. You, you mentioned that you kind of were both doing this in parallel universes, and it made sense to just combine forces. And so, you know, the, so much of our business is is relationship, and it's knowing how to um, invest in, in those that are invested in us, I find. And so I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what it is about working and we're going into business with your spouse that creates a long-term working relationship as well. I know you said in an interview that if it was earlier in your marriage, it probably would have been a disaster. But now it's actually a really wonderful thing. I mean, I think for Liz and I, um, you know, each of us at this point in our lives, you know, we know we've been married for almost 19 years. Congrats. We know each other really well, and we know what each one wants to do really well. And so we kind of have our lanes. Like Liz, 
wants to direct things and she wants to support other filmmakers who she finds are interesting um, and help them with their work. And like, that's what she wants to do. I want to produce and I want to build a home for a lot of different filmmakers to make things that are great. And I want to put out shows, films and series into the world that I think are worth watching. So I do a lot of management and I do a lot of work with our team and Liz really focuses on directing and producing. And each of us understands the other's lane and respects it and supports them in doing their thing. Neither of us really tries to get into the business of the other. Instead, we're there to support them when they need and want it. And I think um, that's what's made it work. But I, you know, I don't think that abstractly, like it's either a great thing or a terrible thing to be in business with your uh, spouse. Mm-hmm. And it was only when each of us thought, you know what? I'd really like to create a larger production entity that it seemed worth doing it together. Like Leah's wanted to do it for her own reasons, which was that she was being brought so many projects that were interesting to her and she couldn't make them all as a director. And she wanted to help other filmmakers and, and work as a producer to bring those projects to other storytellers, but still be involved. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be able to start making more and more things for all the platforms that I saw we're just going to keep growing and having documentary reach further and further into lots of different audiences. And, um, and I, and I felt like I had the experience to do that and build it. And it just happened to be that, you know, we each wanted to do the same thing, which was create a production company. It just didn't make sense to have two different ones in the same household. Yeah. <laughs> and it's worked, it's worked really well. And, um, yeah. And as you mentioned, I don't think it would have worked for us earlier in our lives, but it happens to be luckily that it works really well now. And, um, and that's a wonderful thing. So you guys have withstood, you guys started with about nine employees, you withstood the pandemic, sort of about a year, a little less than a year, maybe into the beginning of the company. And now here you are on the other side. From what I read, there's like 50 plus employees, you guys are crushing it, you're doing the GameStop series, you're like, there's so much great stuff that seems to be coming down the pipelines. How does it feel? I feel very lucky to be able to do what I like and make a living at it. Yeah, that's bottom line. Like I get to, I I get to do something I really enjoy and feel passionate about it. And I get to make a living doing it. And I get to surround myself with people who I admire and respect both storytellers and other um, producers and members of our staff who share the same goals and feel the same degree of excitement about pinching themselves that this is actually true. And they get to do this. Yeah. And I just feel lucky to be able to do it. It's hard to see anything positive coming out of the pandemic, which was a horror for so many people who lost family. It was a horror for so many people who were struggling during it. Um, We were lucky in in documentary to be able to keep working, mostly because our crews are so small that we could handle even the very tough constraints that COVID posed and making things and and keeping people safe. And um, so we happened to you know, grow in terms of productions during COVID in part because we were making some things about COVID and in part because there was increased demand from all the streamers, you know, all these COVID, yes, it accelerated the streamers, but it also happened in a moment when all these streamers were already growing. Right. And there was an overlap there. And so COVID or not, there was going to be more demand for both nonfiction and scripted. We were lucky to be in in the right place at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Switching gears for a little bit, you in 2013, you had a great talk that you did at TIFF about building long-term relationships with investors, right? And on, on the independent side of things, often the question is, but how do I get the money? How do I build these relationships? And I, I'll link to that topic because I think that conversation is still very applicable today. But given that it's almost a decade later and so much has shifted, um, especially with, with financiers and investors on the indie side, there's so much importance about the endurance of that financier producer relationship. And you say it so brilliantly in that talk where you shouldn't set out to just make one movie and have one experience or one film, one project with that investor. Instead, you sh- it's such a vetting process. It's so difficult to get to even that starting line. It, the relationship building should transcend that project so that you get to do it time and time again. And that's how you build a career. But now that so much, it seems like it has shifted with how investors look at projects, especially in the in the indie space, from what you remember of that talk, how much of that advice has shifted? The idea of trying to find a place of commonality between storytellers and funders and having each treat the other with respect and dignity and trying to find the win-win in that relationship through that kind of you know humanitarian treatment of each other, I think that remains true. I think that's yeah. true for any partnership in any way. Um, when money is involved or not. Um, that said, I do think that there is the source of money for for nonfiction filmmaking now is much more coming out of these streamers than it is out of foundations and equity investors. Just in general, yeah, I think that's undeniable. So, in that sense, you know, if I were giving that talk today, I probably would have given a talk about how to interact with your executives at streamers um, because those are the people who are really the gatekeepers to the opportunity to make things. Yeah. And uh, those are the folks who you, you have to learn how to collaborate with to get to the win-win of they feel really good about what they're putting on their platform and the fact that they chose your film or your series and you feel good about making something that you really believe in for people to see. It's a different power dynamic, actually, hmm. than yep. funders, because the, the pressures that executives at streamers are under are immense. If you're a high net worth individual, you're not under any pressure to support any film or right. other. You're doing it because you, you believe in that subject or that filmmaker or that topic is important, and you want to see it made. And you have your own desires and needs in that context, but you're not under pressure. Um, executives at these streamers are under an enormous amount of pressure to, to get it right. These are their jobs yeah. and they report to people and they report based on the success of those films and how they tickle those algorithms and get people to watch. And so it's a relationship that has a lot of different forces at play than the, than the equity or grant funder relationship right. and a whole different way of navigating and being a good partner. But I think at the, at the core, what's similar is finding the win-win. How can you help an executive succeed and, and succeed as a producer and have your director get to be able to express themselves and do what they want all at the same time? That challenge is never easy, but that's the work if you want to be able to keep making things over and over, not just make one film. Yeah, I get this all the time. Like, oh, I have a great concept for a doc how do I get it to Amazon? And I'm like, oh man, like there's a lot more opportunity, but the gates 
are now thicker <laughs> somehow because the volume is so high. And to your point that people's jobs are on the line. So for those that are looking to get in and those traditional models don't are, are so rare, right? And you could be the person that makes your your doc for $100,000, God bless, you know, and you actually get it into the film festival and you get it to the market and you get to, to, to do it in the more traditional route and get your name out there. That That is so much harder now. But I would venture to say that the other path of like trying to knock on those doors and have someone take a, sh- take a chance on you as well when you don't really have maybe the track record or the experience yet also is difficult for different reasons. So how does anyone do anything? It's always hard to make your first yeah just and have it get noticed. It's it's a struggle. It's always been a struggle. It always will be a struggle. That said, in many ways, it's easier now than it's ever been because of the democratization of technology. Right. You can make things so incredibly cheaply, and you can find audiences through social media platforms in ways that you never could before. And um, while that requires its own set of marketing skills to make the most of that, the truth is it's easier than it ever was to actually make something and get it seen. Yeah. Everyone, whether it's folks like me at production companies or it's executives at streamers, all of us want to find something new and great. Like that's what makes the job worth doing. The truth is that if you're good, you can find incredible opportunities because people are always looking for new great things. Yeah. I certainly am. I mean, that's what interests me is finding new filmmakers to work with who have something powerful to say and say it really well. And um you know, that sense of discovery is thrilling and it's inspiring. And um so all I can say is it's never easy to make the first thing, but you can do it now in a way that you you know that used to be much, much, much more difficult. And once you have the first thing and you do it well, you actually have incredible opportunities. Yeah. And it's increasingly democratized because of the desire by all kinds of platforms now to be supportive, for example, of LGBTQ storytellers, of BIPOC storytellers. Like it's never easy ever. And there's still a long way to go. But there are at least mandates at these corporations to do better. And so we're in a moment in which there is more opportunity for more people and there's more films and series being made than there ever has been. Mm -hmm. So all things considered, it's actually a really, really positive time. That is that is one of the upsides of the corporate age of document. You know, there's even more opportunity for more people than there used to be. Yeah. It ain't perfect for sure, but it's it's better than it was. Yeah, I agree. Like you said, not perfect. Still got a long ways to go. But I, I always like to say it's still never been a better time than now to be a woman in our industry, to be a person of color in our industry. There's there's a, a, sh- a shift in focus, at least, that is there. Like when people ask me for this advice as well, that's what I always say. I say, you know, there's so much out there, but the stuff that for some reason is exceptional rises to the top. And that's the, that's the other difference too, is I find that you do have to be exceptional in what you're trying to do. The execution doesn't have to be flawless just yet if you're lo- trying to, to still find your footing, but it has to be 
to the point that it, it captures the attention of someone who maybe is a little further in their path who can see what you're doing and go, wow, this is actually really incredible. This is exciting. I see the vision. You know, I, I just came back from Atlanta where I went to produce um, a feature length film that was a, a, mo- a mockumentary. It's a comedy. And, you know, the these twins that are awesome, Adama and Adane Ibo, they made this short film as a proof of concept, as many do. And, you know, it's not a flawless short film, but you can see that there was a vision and there was a uniqueness to the voice that was enough for a financier to say, I'm going to take a bet on this. This is exciting enough that I believe there's something here. And to your point, this is a very traditional you know, independent finance uh, model that if we lose it, we lose it. But we, we were taking a chance on something that we haven't really seen before, you know, or excited by. And that's what gets them out of bed every morning. So, yep, I'm totally with you. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of work-life balance, right? I want to talk about um, the challenges that you faced. So much of what I love about getting to do this show is to really talk transparently about the difficulty of the lifestyle of a producer, whether or not you have found success financially or, or whatever it may be. But it does come, it seemed like for every person, there's a set of inherent challenges. And I'm, I'm personally obsessed with understanding how any of us navigate that, weather those storms and come out the other side, not being cynical assholes about it all, frankly, you know, and still wanting to show up and do this work that is very challenging, but it's so rewarding, you know, and so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that just in your own journey, if there's any moments you care to share or seasons of your career where you were just really down in the dumps, to be honest, and you didn't know how you were going to make it through and what what got you through it. Um. It's really hard. I found particularly at the beginning of your career, particularly when you want to take a path that isn't common. There are times that I went through where I wasn't making anything. I couldn't sell anything. Um, and I was just doing gigs um, in order to work. I had support from my family in a way that many people aren't lucky enough to have. So for me, it was a lot easier than it has been for many people. But I was just taking work to try and find any way to get a toehold in the industry early in my career. I founded um, Impact Partners in 2007 while I was working full-time for a documentary uh, producer making an industrial. So I worked for a wonderful um, old-style PBS documentary filmmaker named David Grubin, who's made many, many, many things for PBS is a lovely guy. And he was making, he is hired to make an industrial for uh, DuPont, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe it was. And like the history of the DuPont family, he hired me to produce it. It was a gig and I was working and it wasn't the most interesting thing to me. And it wasn't even the kind of filmmaking I wanted to do, but it was a job. And it allowed that whole year, I started Impact Partners. So the first year of Impact Partners, I was working as a full-time producer and at the same time, starting this company, that was a lot of hard work. I loved David, but the, the, the work itself didn't interest me. And a lot of people have to put up with a lot worse where you're working for someone who you don't like and the work doesn't interest you. Yeah. But you need a paycheck and you need to survive. You just keep going. Yeah. Keep pushing. I was in 2007, I was 39 years old when I started Impact Partners. Or no, how old was I? Sorry, I was 30. 37. And um, it had been a real struggle for me to do anything up to that point. And then I was lucky that 
things just took off and I happened to be in the right place at the right time and was working with great people and, and it worked, but you know, that's 37, you know, that's, that's not like 22. Did you ever think of giving up at that time? I mean, do you feel like had that maybe that shift not happened in your career at 37? Do you think you would have stuck it out? I did. I was married and I had kids and I thought maybe I should just bail and, and find a way to go make a living and do something else. The problem was there just really wasn't anything else that interested me. Yeah. So it was very hard. Yeah. And, um, and luckily I was able to, um, to stick it out and, um, and things turned. But actually, it was, it was actually my wife who introduced me uh, through her friend, introduced me to a woman named Geraldine Dreyfus, who was, cre- who, who was he- helping all these high net worth individuals who wanted to support films. And I met her and we started creating impact partners together yeah. with just two other people. I got this introduction. I was lucky that these people were great people. And then I worked really hard to build it into something. And, and from nothing, we grew it into, you know, later now, you know, lots of, lots of movies and lots of investors. And I've gone and done other things. But sometimes you just need a little bit of luck to find that right connection, that person who connects you to the right person and things can begin to click. Yeah, at the right time. Sometimes one can be lucky enough to meet a fairy godmother in real life, and that's Gerilyn. She is like a real-life yeah. fairy godmother to so many filmmakers, really countless filmmakers who she's helped, supported, found funds for, given a bed to, everything. It's truly incredible, right? The, the, the invisible hands that are guiding careers of so many, which is why I personally feel obsessed about talking to the people that work behind the scenes and maybe aren't as visible, not because it's our place to be visible, but because I think our stories and our, what we do should be documented as well for those that are also gravitating towards that invisible but important work. I have a few more questions before we wrap up. I have one last question, and then there's this lightning round I've been doing of just fun f- final five questions just to wrap it up. What's the legacy you hope to leave behind? I don't, I don't think about that. I just, I just try to make really good work and make sure that the people who work on productions in the are treated with dignity and respect and get to do their, their best work, hopefully. Yeah. That's what I hope. That, that is a wonderful legacy to leave behind. Okay, cool. So this is the lightning round. This is the very end here. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? I'll just say anything by Bill Withers. What's the last piece of art that moved you? I was looking at a photograph of an installation of a Warhol skull from the mid 60s. I just, it, it just had a certain emotion and intensity for me that I liked. I don't even know who made it. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Meditation. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Invest in yourself and what you really, really want to do. This is the final question. Inspired by Inside the Actor's Studio, the question, which was sort of made famous by the famed uh, French journalist Bernard Pivot, if, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? The film's about to begin. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Seriously, these conversations are little time capsules, little blurbs, and the wisdom you've shared today here. I think I I find it tremendously inspiring, and it's just great to share this moment with you. So thank you for taking a moment out of your day to be on the show. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's it's been a pleasure to to talk to you and to, you know, step back for a minute and think about these things. So thanks for giving opportunity. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. You can find the show at angleonproducers.com. 
Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Beijos.